0: Hello and welcome back to the Swift Legacy Podcast, a show where we talk all things Taylor Swift with a focus on her early career. We're your hosts, Amy and Molly, and today we're incredibly excited and honoured to be joined by a very special guest, one of Taylor's earliest co-writers, Robert Ellis Oral.
1: Hey guys, this is an episode that we've been hoping to record ever since Amy first had the idea for this podcast and we're so excited that it's finally happening.
0: Today we're going to be chatting to Robert Ellis Oral, a singer-songwriter that Taylor worked with a lot during the early years of her career.
1: Robert wrote and co-produced a number of songs on Taylor's first album, including I'm Only Me When I'm With You, A Place in This World and Invisible. He also wrote a lot of Taylor's unreleased songs, including the very, very well-known unreleased song Dark Blue Tennessee, and one of our personal favorites, just south of
0: knowing why. Would you like to introduce yourself to those of our listeners who might not know you?
2: Sure. Um, I, my name is Robert Ellis Orle, two R's, two L's. And um, I wanted to be in the music business when I was in high school and never looked back, never thought there was really anything that I could do. So I started writing songs. I got put a band together. I got a record deal on RCA. This is out of Boston, Um, made three albums for RCA uh, over a period of years, toured. I made two of them in Wales, actually. Rockfield Studios in Wales, which is incredibly famous studio where just, I mean, everybody recorded there. I think they have a documentary about to come out. I lost my record deal. And then I just said, well, I'm just gonna write songs because that's what I wanted to do in the first place. And we didn't have a country radio station in Boston. I grew up on pop and R&B and rock and everything else and once I saw a billboard one day a billboard magazine and I was looking at the country charts and I was like huh it's like every one of these uh artists is recording a song that he didn't write I mean it's like down there they're cutting songs so I'm gonna start going down there and learn what this is all about so I did and uh about 87, 88, I started going down all the time and writing songs. And then uh, in 1990, we moved there because I was just about to have my first number one, which actually happened the first day. The first day we all moved to Nashville. That was my wife and my two boys at the time. I now have a daughter as well, of course, but we uh, we went from the airport to a number one party for my first number one so I was like okay here we go (laughs) and then I stumbled into another record deal um, at the Bluebird same place where Taylor got hers I, I did a show because I'd had a number one I did a show to show off more of my songs and the next day I got a call from RCA again only RCA Nashville and they said we want to sign you to a record deal and I was like what so I did and then couple more things. I did this duo thing and was nominated for CMA for duo of the year. And uh, then it was like, okay, now I'm just going to write songs and develop artists and like work with people. I was getting old by then. Like I was like in my like 40 by then. Boy, I'm really old now. But anyway, um, so that was that. And then um, I just started working with artists and trying to uh, record demos and and get them record deals. That was my job at the time.
0: It's amazing. And to think like the first day you were in Nashville straight to a number one party, that must be insane. Cause like, I mean, it's kind of referred to now as a 10 year town, but like sure. first, year, it's
1: yeah, it's insane. <laughs> yeah. It's a good way to pick it off. So can you tell us how you met Taylor then and how you started writing together?
2: Yeah, actually it's, it's a great story because so, she, you know, she had a deal on RCA Records. I think most people in, that know as, as much about her as you guys do know that a lot of people don't. Um, but, yeah, that's the biggest mistake in the history of the uh, record business, letting her go. And um, so but while she was still on RCA, she, um, she had, a, uh, you know, her like a r person was this woman named Leslie Roberts who just believed in her a hundred percent. And she just couldn't get the people above her to like, let's go, let's do this. Um, And so she uh, had talked to me about writing with her. uh, And so I was kind of familiar with her. And then um, one morning I got a call from my friend Angelo and he just went by the name Angelo, but he's been my friend since like 1977. Like I've known him forever up, up in New England up here. Um, and he moved to Nashville after he visited me once, and he was like, Nashville's cool, I'm going to come down and stay here, so he called me up in a panic, because um, he had this 13-year-old girl coming over, and he had to write a song with her, and he, he called me up and said, dude, you got to come over and help me, I got this 13-year-old girl coming over, I don't know, what, what are we, we going to write about, and I said, "What whoa, 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 he says, you know what you're doing. I mean, your daughter's 13 and, and, she, and you're, you guys are working on songs together. And like, I, I can't. I, and I was like, what, what's her name? Taylor Swift. I was like, oh, I know who she is. She's on RCA. And he said, yeah. I said, OK, I'm coming. I'll be over there. And um, I went over and, and uh, you know, that was where I got to know her personality in like the first 10 minutes. Like she was incredibly like ready to go and she was really like upbeat and very professional and she was 13 and the other two people in the room were in their 50s so let's say let's say around 55 that's 110 years of experience and then 13 year old and so i remember we the first song we wrote was i'm only me when i'm with you and she said i want to write something like Avril Lavigne but country and i was like cool so like they jump up and down that's where that all came from and uh so we got kind of stuck on a line somewhere and Angelo hadn't thrown out any lyrics yet (laughs) and he uh he, he uh he threw out these two lines and she just she looked at him and I'm sitting here and she's over here and he's over here and she looked at him and said I don't know that's kind of trite and uh and he went like huh and she said i'm not sure my demographic would say something like that and he went huh and i and i just put my 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 fingers like little guns and went shot down by the 13 year old all right here we go high five and i went over and high-fived her cuz it was astonishing her confidence you know right from the get go
0: that is just incredible and it really shows how self-aware and aware of exactly who she was aiming for from
1: the beginning. Absolutely. Gosh. I mean, listening to that, you can you can tell why she got far.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was extraordinary. I, I've been in this business for uh, almost 40 years. I'm trying to get out and just go to the beach, but um, it, it was, a, you know, she's, she's one in a million for sure.
0: You said that she wanted to write something kind of Avril Lavigne, but country, that's- She knew she wanted to do
2: that before we even started. Mm -hmm. Avril country I think we nailed it she ended up opening her shows with it my my one regret on that song is that uh you know songwriters make the most money when we have singles and um I remember I didn't you know I I I could never really I never felt comfortable asking uh the record label or Scott what what's the next single going to be but all of a sudden I saw the, the video for I'm Only Me When I'm With You has been released and it went straight to number one in one week. And I was like, Christine, I'm, we're gonna have the next single. And she's like, oh, it's awesome. And then it was like, uh, no, that went to number one already. They felt like they got enough out of it and they went, moved on to another one. I was like, oh no, but hey, all's good, all's good.
0: And the way that kind of, it stood the test of time that if you wrote it when she was 13 for it then to like stay on, until her debut album and then stay on set lists.
2: Yeah, that was kind of a miracle. Um, The second song we wrote was A Place in This World and they both got on that debut record. And it's funny about the song that um, the record label seemed the most excited about uh, before she was even signed when they were listening to demos was What Do You Say? And so even to the point where when I went in to start a recording songs for the record, uh, uh, Scott wanted me to re-record. what do you say? And I said, well, have you heard this? I think we already got it. I mean, we got it. And he was like, well, uh, I've never met a producer that didn't wanna try to beat the demo. And I'm like, cause that's not their demo. It's, uh, you know, it's, we, we went in and we, I record demos the way I would record a record. There's no difference just go in and, and make, get the best performance you can and make it come to life and, and that's it. But anyway, well, I want to re-record that song. So we re-recorded it and I think that's what kind of dragged it down because it was like she was young and uh, effervescent the first time she went in to sing it and the second time it was like, why are we doing this again? So that one's lost. I, I don't even see that making it on the, uh, on the vault stuff. Cause That's it's such so a shame. country.
1: It's, know, such such a good song. it's very country. So I'm surprised they were really, I wouldn't say it fit the debut album as well as the rest of the songs do. Right.
2: It would, maybe that was part of it too. I mean, the same, same reason why crazier was not considered crazier was a like a two fiddle traditional country waltz. I mean, that was not going on. And I could understand that. Um, but then again, later on, uh, Disney called her up and said, hey, we need a three-quarter twin fiddle waltz for this movie we're doing, Hannah Montana, and we want you to sing it. And she only had one, and so she sent it to them, and another million-selling record. (laughs) If you ask me, the the music business, and I've had a great, long career, and I attribute most of it to luck because, um, I mean, you have to be at a certain level and you have to work really hard, but uh, then you have to have a little bit of luck. I mean, it just doesn't happen without it.
0: Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. So can you describe what a typical writing session with Taylor was like?
2: Yeah, um, first off, um, we wrote in my house, because at the time I didn't have a publishing deal. I had left Peer um, after EMI, after Warner Chapel. You know, it's like, you know, you just kind of musical chairs for career songwriters in Nashville. And um, so she would get dropped off after school, and we would just, uh, she would uh, be raring to go. And uh, I had a grand piano uh, in the living room. And we pulled out our guitars. Sometimes I sat at the piano, because that's more my instrument. Um, or she would say, I have a piano idea. And she would start playing it. That's how crazy, crazy started. Oh, that's how invisible started. I correct myself. So Invisible started with her sitting down. Crazier, I think, was me because that, again, turns out to be that's nah, not going to make the record. Um, but uh, and then she often had uh, like an idea or a, or a bit of a chorus or something. I mean, sh- listen, this girl was writing some days like four or five songs by herself. And her dad would call me up and say, uh, Rob, my name has never been Rob, by the way, but he never called me anything but Rob. Uh, Rob uh, Taylor wrote four more songs yesterday. Let me read you the lyrics. And then he would read me the lyrics to like four songs. So I put the, the phone on speakerphone and drive and go, ah, it's, there's another one. But um, the, the difference was when she was that age, you know, one out of 10 of them were amazing. And the other ones, not so much. Then uh, like not two years later, nine out of 10 of them were amazing. I mean, she just, she had it, it was, she had it in her. And I think just doing some co-writing at the beginning um, took her to a place where there's everyone, even when I co-write to this day, I learn new things because everyone has different approaches to stuff. But especially when you're writing with someone that's been doing it for a long time, which now she has, she can write with a young writer and the writer might say this, that, and the other thing she go, well, you see, there's not going to be any place we can go with that. For one thing, how are we going to rhyme this and how are we going to squeeze that in for three lines before the chorus happens? It's like impossible. I know it is because we've been trying that for 20 years. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, so then uh, it, we, it was, it was easy. It was fun. Sometimes we got things like half done and kind of bailed on them. Um, there's a few of those sitting that are like half written, they are still sitting around. <laughs> I'd love to finish someday, but I don't think I'm gonna, uh, I don't think that's gonna happen with with her.
0: It would be amazing though, wouldn't it, to go back and like
2: finish yeah, all always, the ones
0: you'd started. Yeah, I've always thought it,
2: it would be fun to, if I was still gonna, if I was still in the business of developing new art talent and working with young songwriters, I would, uh, it'd be cool to pull out a half written song with uh, another, a young woman that has stars in her eyes and say, Hey, get this half written song with Taylor. You want to finish it with me? I just don't know how she would react to that. And if she said, I don't, if she said no, the answer would be no, because I I wouldn't do any, I wouldn't want to do anything that was, that would piss her off because it's, that that wouldn't be right.
0: Yeah, definitely. And how long would it generally take you to write a song together?
2: Um, pretty pretty close to I, I, because of the time she would arrive after school and the time my wife would come back from the little school that my kids were at where she volunteered, um, that would be about three hours and usually by then we'd be ready to do a, a vocal a little guitar vocal. So sometimes her mom would come and Andrea would like bring like a something from Burger King or something sit down at the our kitchen table. And we'd be like, all right, we're just gonna put a vocal on this thing. And we go down and she would sing it maybe two or three times, just straight through, just sing it. And then I would edit later afterwards, after she left. So I would say average of three or four hours a song, yeah.
1: So you must've written quite a few then. Do you reckon you could estimate how many you wrote together? No,
2: I did you know, it's funny because I didn't, because once things started, once the record deal happened, and things started getting like record businessy. The record label, the first thing they want to do when they have someone signed is start sending that person out to write with all the A-list writers in town. So now, all of a sudden, you've gone from you know, there's there's Liz Rose, there's and there's um, you know a couple people that have written with her a couple times, and there's me, and we're writing with her on a regular basis. But now you know there's one writing point with this person one with this person one with this person one with this person and uh and so it might be 3 weeks before we're going to get the chance to write and I might not be here and you know so I ended up only with we wrote we started at least a dozen I ended up with demos finished on nine um and that doesn't sound like a lot but I'm really proud to have been part of all nine of those so that's for sure
0: yeah and i mean nine fully produced demo songs Mm -hmm. it it is a good number like as much as it might not sound it's essentially almost an album really
2: it is almost an album Hmm.
0: (laughs) so of all these songs of the 12 say you finished do you have a favorite
2: i do it is dark blue tennessee it was when we wrote it i was like wow this is going to be that moment where you you know your band walks off stage one spotlight's going to hit the piano and you're going to sit down and you're going to sing the song by yourself your keyboard player will start adding some strings and there'll be a you know and the pedal steel will come in but it's going to be just like this and it's going to be the centerpiece of your show I just really believed it would be and I think um again like I didn't say, hey, why didn't that song go on the record? I I just felt like, hey, decisions are being made that are not mine to make, I'm a songwriter. And I was asked to produce some songs and I was grateful to do that and love doing that. And uh, so, yeah, I never asked, but um, I had the feeling that was too, felt too mature for the first record. Then I got my hopes up about it being on Fearless and, uh, and then I, I, I never knew how close it came to being on Fearless because I never saw that list of songs on the mirror until probably one of you guys put it on Instagram or something. I don't know, because I mean, I was like, what? I was that close. Um, and it's funny because her dad would call me all the time. he go, Rob, I told her she got to put that dark blue Tennessee on the album. And I'm like, Scott, please stop telling her that. I wouldn't want my dad telling me what to put on the album. Like it's you're making it not go on the album. Stop saying, <laughs> <that>. <laughs> you know. But uh, he loved it, too. It he, he was his favorite song of hers at the time. So
0: I think I speak for most people in the unreleased fandom or the Taylor fandom when I say we are all crossing our fingers, toes, everything for Dark Blue Tennessee to be on the debut album Vault because it really is a fan favorite of the unreleased songs. It's just so iconic and so beautifully written.
2: Yeah, uh, thank you. And I think that um, I think that you know, the way we, we recorded that in my basement, just like I, the other songs, um, uh, they were either recorded. And then when I started really doing demo demos, they were done in some, another friend of mine's basement um, before we were, really started going in the studio. But um, so that was just me playing a bunch of things. And then I gave it to a friend of mine named Dave Hoffner, who put the string arrangement on it and he is amazing he's on my new record too and all he plays like i played a piano and sang a song sent it to him he sent it back same thing with a full orchestra you know just he's amazing but now when you have the chance to bring like in a real orchestra with real arrangements and stuff i mean that song could just uh just be huge i think it could be a single from that album and it would go to number one in, like that. It's my—I grew up with this mantra: "Don't get your hopes up, Bobby." And uh, I don't—I try not to because you know it would be wonderful. It'd be certainly an incredible little frosting on the top of my career to have, go out with a with a tailored cut. But you know, there's a lot of songs in the vault, so we'll see what happens. Yeah,
1: I mean, I'd, I'd love to see it on that. I think it's a—it's an incredible song. It was the first unreleased song I heard, I think. And I remember the first time I heard it clearly because I loved it so much. While we're on the topic of Dark Blue Tennessee, you probably know what I'm going to ask because we put a post up about it a while ago. We have a question about the bridge. Yes. We had a podcast episode go up about the song a few weeks ago now. and, And we were debating whether the line in the bridge, she almost called him on the night that he wrote these simple words on his goodbye note was a reference to a suicide note or whether it was meant as a literal goodbye note. So can you shed any light on that? Yeah, part? that's
2: what made the song too mature for the first album, because that's really what what it was.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and that's what we, we had no problem saying it was because that was the, it was Romeo and Juliet. And who doesn't love Romeo and Juliet? Taylor loves Romeo and Juliet. So that's what it was. But maybe if we had never admitted that it would have had a better shot, but. No, it was definitely um, to, meant to be that sad because it's just that about these two people that love each other but then just not just telling each other how they feel. It's like so important to, I don't know, you know what that's like, It's that, that's
0: life. Another question that we have about a song that you co-wrote with Taylor is whether, just south of knowing why, was originally called Just South of Knowing Why or Drive All Night because it's very debated in the unreleased community <laughs> and no one really knows the answer.
2: I know. The, the answer is it was it was always called Just South of Knowing Why, right from the beginning. And that was actually my title. I, I like that title. Like just 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 south of knowing why. Like I think that we are in that position all the time when we do something. Why did I do that? And you're, and anyway, so, but obviously it makes sense that people can hear Drive All Night, because that's the big hook, you know, and it's it's really the way she just, the way she sang that, it just, it just takes off and it just sounds so good. Yeah, I guess if there was another song that I'd love to see her bring back it would be that one, because also when I produced that song, I produced it very sort of lightly and pedal steel and I wanted to keep it country because the, the response that I had been getting from RCA was that, oh, Robert, this is too pop. Like when I turned in, I'm only me when I'm with you to RCA records when she was still signed. The actual recording that is now on that 11 million selling record, they went, oh, no, I don't think it's too pop. I don't I don't think people will go for that. I'm like, no, it's perfect. No. So um, they never owned it. We just took it back and ended up on the first record without even being remixed. I mean, it was exactly what I slid across the desk. Um, to the A folks at RCA, but if you re-recorded that song now, it could rock. It could really rock.
0: <laughs> it would be amazing to hear Taylor's updated vocals on that. I think. I mean, there are so many songs that I would love to see on the debut vault personally, but just out of knowing why and Dark Blue Tennessee have to be up there, like in the top ten.
2: Would I'm you agree, hoping, Molly?
0: I'm not Definitely. hoping. No, <laughs> we won't get your hopes up. But we'll see
2: what I, happens, I swear. I, I don't want to hope because I don't want to be disappointed. Although even if I don't hope, I know I would be disappointed. If nothing happened, but uh, but I still just feel like part that I had in her career uh, and and where it went. Um, it's very I look back and say I did I was a part of something really really big and really great. So I mean I've I've definitely got what I need to get out of it for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: So. If we move on from the songwriting side of things to the producing side of things, obviously we're right in thinking that you produced a number of demos for Taylor. Was it a natural progression from producing her demos to producing the tracks on her debut album and the Beautiful Eyes EP?
2: Yeah, because first off, um, I, I don't see a difference. I mean, the, the, the first demo we cut, the first couple demos we cut were, Um, a place in this world and I'm only me when I'm with you and I'm only me when I'm with you um, went from being the demo that we cut to being on that record without being remixed so it it, to me recording you're just going for the best thing you can get now Um, that being said you have to move a lot quicker when you're doing demos because you know you can't spend a whole day on one song but sometimes that's the best way to get the life in a performance is just to let's, let's go. And if something's not working on the second or third take, you know what, let's move on to another one. And maybe you come back to it. Um, that's how I like to work. I think the, um, the demo of what do you say is uh, so much better than the recording of what do you say that didn't go on the album because first off the musicians, they, I played it for them, the demo. And they were like, uh, and these are like the best musicians in Nashville, and they're all looking at each other and going, "Why are we recording this? I mean, that isn't that the record?" And I'm like, "Well, they want us to re-record it, so everybody listen and copy the parts that are there, and we'll do it." And uh, it, it just it, it never came to life. Um, so it's kind of the same thing. I was looking at the. Uh, th- th- it's kind of interesting because the invisible and and I didn't remember this till right now invisible and the outside and what do you say number two and I heart question mark we all part of the same session and that was for big machine um so and then I was looking and saying yeah but wait a minute I thought I cut the outside in Gary's basement and then I went back oh I did and I cut I heart question mark in Gary's basement. So, um, and that was way back in June of 04 was the first time we cut those songs. So the, the songs that we cut for her, like to bring around to record labels were the outside, your face, I heart question mark, crazier, beautiful eyes, what to wear better off invisible, Just south of knowing why, and need you now, and then one more, which is, I'm every woman. I remember one somehow that got up on the internet, and Scott called me up and said, "Rob, you got to take that down." And I was like, "Take what down?" And he's like, "I'm every woman. We can't. I I can't. We can't have that up on the internet." I said, "Why would I put that on the internet? That's the last thing I'm going to do is take something that I worked on and throw it up on the internet." we wrote we recorded that to, they were pitching it to a movie. And I don't know how close it got to being in the movie, but um have you guys heard that song?
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. It is kind of in circulation, Taylor's version of that.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> it's pretty funny. My this is the thing. Uh and I said I've said this to Scott a couple of times. Uh in this, I'm talking about her dad. My word is my word. The all I have everything she's ever sung into a tape recorder on a spool in my office there's at least five or six of those cds she's probably like 11 or something she did not want anyone hearing that, that that stuff i mean she's just figuring it out and i told i told scott right off the bat these will never leave my office um i will never send one to somebody uh and they never have so they're just sitting there i
0: think that's amazing <laughs> though because like I mean, with the whole Scooter Braun, Scott Bouchetta thing that happened the other year, which was obviously extremely upsetting. I think it's amazing that like there are people like you who are so protective over the early work that she has and just like genuinely your word is your word. Yeah.
2: And I'm being I'm trying to be respectful because it is her work and she doesn't she's not putting it out there to be heard. So that means she doesn't want it out there to be heard. So that's the end of the story. It's funny because there was some like, I remember a lot of people on Instagram were like, saying that I owned all these masters and I would, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't sell them to Scooter Braun. I think that there was some conflation between masters that I do own on my hard drive, like Need You Now and Just South of Knowing Why and stuff like that and Dark Blue, Tennessee. But that then just CDs full of songs that she's singing um, but it's the same with both things. there none of them are going anywhere.
0: Yeah, I think there's quite a lot of confusion, I suppose, in the fandom between what masters are compared right. to like copies right. of songs. Right. Um, but yeah, it's really nice to see someone have like such integrity over something like that because, we know that there are like groups of people who like seek unreleased songs, like the inner circle. I don't know if you've come across them, who will literally pay for them, and it's just like uh, it's just not right.
2: Yeah, sometimes I've gotten some uh, uh, emails purporting to be from Taylor that, you know, you know, I lost my copy of such and such. Very clever, you know. Write to my personal email, and I'm like, no. I just write back, no. I imagine
1: I imagine you get a lot of that, or at least used to.
2: Yeah, dude, You're used to. I mean, I think anyone who has my email address probably gave up, you know, they're just not getting a response, so.
0: I actually have quite an interesting question that I've only just thought of, but you know that, like, some of her unreleased songs have got out into circulation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We can never figure out how that actually happens. Do you think it's kind of whether certain sound, gen- sound engineers hear them and just leak them onto the internet,
2: or...? Well, there's a lot of people involved in recording, um, and then uh, there's a lot of people that heard all that early stuff. For instance, um, upstairs, I actually have the the you know the package that went out to everyone. It's like this big clear envelope full of stuff, and and I produced all the music in that package um, that went out to record labels to tell her tell them to come to the Bluebird uh, that night to see her and. You know, the whole idea was that we're getting her a record deal that night. I mean, this is the plan. Um, so those those, rec, those CDs went out to every A&R guy in town. Um, and it's funny because after she blew up, I had A&R guys say, uh, how come you never brought the, you didn't bring that Taylor Swift package by here. And I'm like, oh yeah, I did. Aha, uh-huh, I left it with uh, Junior and I got down here because you were you know on the phone or something. And then a uh, junior a guy says to me, don't, what did you say that for? Oh my God, I never listened to it. Um, but there's there's plenty of opportunities to um, make copies and uh, g- give them to a friend and just say, hey, you should ch- check out this uh, these demos. This girl just got a deal on, you know? And then they get copied and copied and copied. Once you let the cat out of the bag, Kind of out i don't know is there a is there a good copy of dark blue tennessee out there like with the strings and
0: everything yeah yes. yeah there's i think am i right molly there's only one
1: dark blue tennessee version out there and it's a studio demo i think so yeah i think there's a piano version i'm not sure if that's real or someone's put piano behind
2: you yes. know would be before i sent it to dave Hoffner to do the orchestral arrangements on mm-hmm.
1: it. so uh-huh. they're
2: the same vocal but I love to play, you know, if I have a Taylor Swift fan or a friend of a, friend, a new friend or something, oh, my, you know, my kids have been in And I love to play that song for someone. And I always say, put your phone over there and make sure, because I don't, I don't want it recorded or anything. And, um, but because I think that her, uh, the last verse where her voice just quivers a little bit, I mean, it's just, It still gives me goosebumps. It really does. That was one of her best vocals.
0: I think it's no surprise really that that song is such a fan favorite because it's just incredible. But yeah, there is like the studio demo version of that and just south of knowing why. And I think I'm right in saying the What Do You Say is a studio demo and Need You Now is as well, Molly? Need You Now is a studio demo, definitely.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's two What Do You Say's that are both studio demos. I mean, one's a demo, but one's a master. Oh, and right. now the master and I prefer the demo anyway so the master was probably not out there because that would have been turned into big machine period
1: mm-hmm. and then they already have it
2: and there's no reason for them to be sending that out so yeah solving mysteries here <laughs>
1: yeah it does feel like that a little bit
0: yeah <laughs> I mean there is an age-old mystery that we always seem to bring up on our podcast a, a oh, song called Nashville <laughs> which she performed actually you 2006 she performed it December 20 something 2006 at the Wild Horse Saloon in Nashville
2: yeah and I was not there so
0: (laughs) (laughs) every single time we have a guest we're like do you know anything about Nashville (laughs) because the inner circle who are like this group of Taylor fans who hoard demos and like pay for them and it's it's just it's ridiculous but they're so Exclusive. Anyway, they have Nashville. So we just, we want to one up them.
2: I I will ask um, Stephen Barker Lyles, the the guy that she wrote Hey Stephen about. um, He's one of my best buds. And, you know, I went on to produce Love and Theft. That was my next project after Taylor. And um, uh, I'll ask him if he, because I know that, you know, those two things kind of dovetail. And we got them on her as an opening act on her first tour and that's when she got a little crush on him and um and maybe you know maybe he was there that night i'll I'll ask him
0: that would be amazing thank you very much how does it feel to see her reach such levels of fame and success that she has the ability to revisit and re-record her old albums
2: being as successful as she is makes me really happy um because she deserves it um I, i mean i i have to say without sounding like I'm I mean there's no reason for me to say anything that I don't truly believe about her I've never seen anyone with the uh the determination and confidence at such a young age I mean you just knew this girl's going places I remember I met her dad after the first day of songwriting with her he came to pick her up and I said uh he's like Hi, Rob I'm Scott Swift I should have corrected him on the name right then but I'm Scott Swift and uh and I said you know, your daughter's going to sell three million copies of her first record, and you know, I think he was the only other person who believed it because he's like, yeah, I think so too. But uh, and I was, we were both wrong because you know, she sold a lot more than that. <laughs> I mean, I I thought she was going to be a huge country star. Um, I I didn't see, didn't I did not envision things like her hosting Saturday Night Live or being on the cover of every magazine including Vogue. So, um, I can't say that I predicted all that. It was pretty extraordinary. And then as far as her, you know, re-recording, um, I know she, you know, she, uh, was really unhappy with the way things went down and she found the most punk rock response to that in the world. All right, fine. See ya. Gonna re-record them all. And I was like, wow, who does that? And I, I really, um, i think that's really cool
1: i can imagine even if those songs that we are hoping so much end up on the vault on the debut album don't get re released or released i can imagine it's exciting anyway to have some of those songs that you did write and produce for her get released on the re-recordings
2: oh yeah yeah i hope we'll see what happens just i just i don't think about things like that
0: I mean, fingers crossed, but in, say, your ideal world, what unreleased songs would Taylor include on the debut vault if it was, if you had control of it?
2: (laughs) If I had control of the vault, she would put all nine songs that we wrote on on the record, but I don't have control of the vault. There's nothing we wrote that I, anything that we were writing that we didn't feel was killing it, we just, we we, we stopped. We were like, are you really feeling this? I don't know. Sometimes you're afraid to say that with your co-writer because they might be really into it, and you're going, eh, "That's so you, you know." But some things get tossed. But I will not. Um, I just, I just, I, I, I won't go any further than to um, hope that I get a song on there. And uh, in my wildest dreams, um, it would be two, and it would be. Dark blue Tennessee and just south of Nong Yeah,
0: I think we would we would agree those two out two. of all of them, mm-hmm.
2: definitely. I've got a, a lot of like the tailory stuff that I have because I don't throw anything away. It's almost all in Florida because that's really my main place. But uh, here's here's something she made me. It's um it's a it, she took a razor blade. She was bored in the studio, and she took a razor blade to this uh, cup. It says. Taylor's razor blade. Taylor's razor blade, <laughs> and she and she made me a couple of these things. Oh Still have them
0: because
2: I don't throw anything away. Gosh,
0: yeah. that must be crazy to like have Taylor Swifts. It's art. Random. Yeah, I have
2: Taylor Swift art in my house.
0: Wow, <laughs> no, that yeah. could auction for millions. Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, you I, I, I would. Be, that would be too weird, man. I, I, I you know. <laughs> believe me, I've been offered crazy money for for things and i i just like no i i don't first off i'm doing fine uh and uh no i i i it's too, it's too personal i have another one of my favorite things is um her dad's boat was called bling and um so the first time i was out at the house you're like come let's go on the boat i don't know if we went out on the boat but I remember I was drinking from a cup. They had cups made, black cups with the word "bling" on them. And I was like, "Kind of keep this cup." And thought, I still have that cup. It's <laughs> one of those cups that, like, I fill it with, you know, your spare change always goes into something. And yeah, that's down in my Florida house. But yeah, I, I am. I have everything, and that's why I'm able to keep. And I'm and I'm finding more things because when I moved, I had to like go through everything and throw stuff out and. Uh, I am I actually have like a couple of date books from 2003 and four that I still haven't even gone through day by day and see what I was doing every day. And because a lot, I'd really love to know exactly when did we write that song? Mm-hmm. Like I know, like, remember we just South of Knowing Why was, a, was a rare song to write at her house. Um, Cause we usually wrote at my house, but, and that was the first time I, I saw her. She showed me um, her, the swimming pool that was under the living room do you what?
1: guys
0: know that we would love okay. to so
2: in her parents house apparently whoever put this, this addition on they built this like big great room they built it directly over a swimming pool that was there so there was a trap door that she opened up, it was the scariest thing I've ever seen. It just made me, I like, I couldn't live in this house with that. And you look down, and there's a sw- there's a full blown swimming pool under the floor, uh, sunk into the ground, and it's just empty, and it's just sitting there. And I'm like, oh my god, that's freaky.
0: So that that would have been the Hendersonville house, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm, gosh, wow, that is definitely a new fact we've learned. <laughs> So aside from working with Taylor, you've also written hits for other artists, including Rascal Flatts, Reba McEntire, and Martina McBride, as well as having your own successful career as a singer-songwriter. Today must be pretty exciting for you to release your new album, 467 Surf & Gun Club. Are there any particular themes that inspired the album?
2: Yes, one in particular. So 467 Surf & Gun Club is a real place. In 2002, right before I started working with Taylor, Uh, My sons, who were like uh, 14 and 12, we started a record label called Infinity Cat. And uh, it was for their bands, for their rock bands and their friends' rock bands. So we started a rock label and it was going to be, oh, this will be fun to do on the weekends. And then it turned into an actual thing. And we are, uh, next year will be our 20th year. Um, We have 125 releases, mostly on vinyl. We went vinyl in 2008, way ahead of the vinyl explosion, my son saw it coming. Um, they were like, dad, CDs are dumb. We need to, anyone can make a CD. We need to press records again. So we, that's when we went vinyl. And um, so we had a, like a, an office and then another office. And, and finally my, my wife and I bought a house in a part of Nashville called Wedgwood Houston and it was right near the record pressing plant. That's how I saw it. Um, I I was like, oh, house for sale across the street. And it was for sale by owner. And it was this little shack, like this little uh, railroad. uh, They they used to build houses for the railroad workers back in the 1890s. And um, instead of paying like $1,200 a month for a couple of rooms on Music Row, I was paying less than $500 a month for a house that I was going to own. So we bought it and we moved Infinity Cat into it. And it had an apartment. It had record storage. It had a screen printing room. It had, you know, a kitchen that opened up into this really big room where everybody worked, and it was just laughter and fun. And you know, I'd be writing songs in one room, and and you know, It, cra- it was crazy. I mean, they, we had a big back deck with a grill, and. There was uh, BB guns on the walls um, and a shooting range out back. And anytime you wanted to get get bored, you just go out and shoot cans. We'd have tournaments and stuff. And we sort of named that 467, which is the address, 467 Humphrey Street. We named it 467 Surf and Gun Club. And we um, had one of our guys that does album covers for us, Perry Shell, uh, we sent him sort of a sketch, and he designed a logo. And then we were like, okay, we're in business. We, we have a bar. So we had an Instagram page, and we set up a, a dumb-looking web page. And we started selling merchandise, hats and hoodies and T-shirts and all kinds of stuff, and just going with the thing that this is a real place and that they happen to be right behind us in, at the same address. And it was it was in terms of the happiness in my life as a – in the music business at all, that stretch in that house was the peak for just pure happiness of going to a place every day to create and hang out with, see everyone on the record label was my kid's age. So it was full of people who were not cynical and had just full of the, here comes the future and we're gonna rock out and just optimism. And it was just a really great place to be. And so I started writing songs in 467 surfing gun club in that room i started writing songs about it but then i kind of put it on the back burner and you know i get i go back to this and back to that and then covid happened and when covid a year ago march when it started getting whoa this is going to be something this is bad i started thinking about uh i could die next month i have a immune disorder and um and COPD and my doctor said, if you if you get this thing, you're you're a dead man walking. So do not get it. And uh, we hold up in this house that we bought on the panhandle and I literally saw nobody. And then I just spent all my time in my studio and I pulled out these songs again. And I was like, this is the best thing I've ever done. I can, if I die, it'll be on my hard drive. No one will ever hear it. I need to finish it. So I started writing the songs to fill in the gaps of the story I wanted to tell. And every song on that record is really about this place that's just up here in my head. So, so there is a theme. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's a big theme.
0: Sounds great though. Mm -hmm.
2: Thank you. Um, I started with that song called In Dreams because it, it is kind of a fever dream, this whole 467 Serpent Gun Club. And that was originally like one of the last songs I wrote to end the album with, but I thought, Oh, you should tell them it's a dream right up front. And then everything else is sort of like really about being there. Um, my favorite song is um, Wish About Her um, because I just think that that idea of this bartender And this girl that keeps coming in and she sits and watches the game and laughs at my jokes once in a while. And then she's like, where'd she go? She disappears and five years have gone by and somehow he still doesn't know her name. And uh, the lyric says, um, uh, and this is funny because I was talking to someone the other day. It says, each night around three, I lock up the bar, look for my keys, walk out to my car, wondering why with so many stars, I can't find one that will listen to the one wish I wish about her. And I think that everybody has had that person that they've seen or they've seen a bunch of times and like, who is that person? And, and I just think that that's a, um, a universal feeling. And, uh, and I'm think, I think I've never been a bartender but I look at being a songwriter, my career as a songwriter is kind of very parallel to that of a bartender. We're mixing and we're, we're, making, we're making things but we're making them with strangers that we sometimes we meet just once and sometimes maybe three times because they're in town for a week. But uh, we also have regulars that you write with for your whole career. And still very few of them do we get very far into knowing what they're really about. You know, you you get just like a bartender is gonna hear some sob story from a guy that just broke up with his girlfriend I hear that from uh, some country singer that just broke up with his girlfriend. And I'm like, ooh, what'd you just say there? We have to write that. And I just think that there's that parallel. So there's a song on the album called uh, Life Behind Bars. That was the last song I wrote for it. And uh, it's, just, it's just all about life from that perspective. And I sent that to Dave Hoffner who did the strings for Dark Blue Tennessee. And he sent them back and just
0: blew my mind. It's cool that you said the um, your favorite song was maybe Wish About Her because we both, we listened to the album together and we both said that that was probably our favorite as well. Um, but we thought it was cool that it kind of almost has a parallel and it seems like it could in a way be the sequel song to just South of Knowing Why from like someone else's perspective. Was that Whoa. like...
2: Ooh, wow. I, wow. Like just you saying that Okay, so she is somewhere else and she's sort of on a journey and could be going from town to town and just trying to, and she just comes in and out
1: and like, who is that girl? Yeah, yeah, I could see, I got goosebumps, look at that. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good idea. You've said one already, but do you have any other favorite lyrics from the album that you can share with us?
2: Yeah, um, first off, all of them. It's my favorite lyrical bunch of things. I just... I just, um, and this is something It's so funny because I I didn't think I was ever going to put out another record. And it was that whole, oh my God, it's sitting on my hard drive. I got to finish this thing that made me go back and really inspect everything and and then write the new stuff. But um, let me see, I got the lyrics around here. I don't remember lyrics ever. Um, Okay, so in Life Behind Bars, there's a run-on sentence that I love that's about about most relationships and people that we circle around us and it says we're lonely and loving and selfish and hateful and hopeful and wistful and angry and grateful and we all know each other by name but we don't know who we are i think that kind of sums up a lot of uh you know the people you meet during the day we everyone's just off on their thing and we know each we know each other by name but we really don't know each other um and then there's the one um, in, in dreams. Uh, Cause I really do believe that um, dreams are just as important as real life. And I think you can, you can get so much out of dreams. I love dreams and I love to write my dreams down. And I especially love dreams that are just wacky, mysterious and somewhat uplifting, and have characters that are all don't, there's no way that this person would ever know that person and they're all stuff. but anyway so that song in dreams I like the uh the chorus the first chorus says and the music played and we swayed and we made each other a promise that we'd always dance like this and we kissed like the end of the world was upon us and we were the last to see the truth about everything can only be seen in dreams that's um that's my favorite single line on the Record.
1: Yeah, it's really beautiful and poetic. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today, but we want to say a massive thank you to Robert Ellis Oral for joining us on this episode. His new album,
0: 467 Surf and Gun Club, is out now and available on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and every streaming platform. CD and vinyl can also be bought at RobertEllisOral.com and InfinityCat.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you again next week with another episode of the Swift Legacy Podcast.